Welcome to Doctor Informed, brought to you by the BMJ and made in collaboration with this institute, sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed aims to take you beyond medical knowledge. We're talking about all of those things that you need to be a good doctor, but which don't necessarily involve medicine. I'm Clara Monroe. I'm a clinical editor here at the BMJ, and I'm also a general surgical registrar in the northeast of England. So I'm really sad to say that this is our last episode of season one. And with it, we're really coming full circle. I'm going to be talking again to our first two guests, Mary Dixon-Woods and Bill Kirkup, having now heard from all of the other experts over the series. We've heard loads and loads of really interesting things in this podcast series. We've talked about speaking out, teamwork, compassionate leadership, all those things that are needed to help clinicians challenge the status quo. But through all this, we've heard about the fact that the system still isn't really geared up to that as well as it could be, and there's a personal toll to challenging things. In this episode, I'll be asking Mary how she thinks things have changed, and Bill how he manages a career challenging a healthcare system. Firstly, my conversation with Mary Dixon-Woods. So I have the absolute pleasure of yet again being joined by Mary Dixon-Woods. Mary, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners again for those who haven't heard of you before? Thank you very much, Clara, and it's an absolute pleasure to see you again. Um, My name is Mary Dixon-Woods and I'm the Director of the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute, otherwise known as this institute at the University of Cambridge. And I have the great privilege of helping to build the evidence base for how to improve quality and safety in healthcare. Uh, This institute is supported by the Health Foundation, so we're a completely independent um, group that advocates for um, evidence and that crucially builds the evidence with patients and staff. You've been with us since the start of our journey, Mary, and we started the first series of the podcast, or sorry, the first episode of this series of the podcast, with some reflections that you had about things that have gone badly wrong. Um, And the way that we've structured the whole series of the podcast is to sort of work backwards, looking at all the ways we can be better as doctors at making sure patients stay safe under our care. We've covered topics um, such as why it's important to be a compassionate colleague, Uh, the bureaucracy around keeping patients safe in the UK, why and how it can be hard to speak up, how to to be a better listener, um, and blame culture. We've covered a lot of ground when it comes to uh, learning how as individuals and at team levels we can improve safety. So it can feel, I think, when you think about a lot of these things, especially these patterns that recur, it can feel very depressing, um, especially when you think about that amnesia. Um... You've been doing this work for a really long time. Um, Do you get a sense that over that period of time, things have improved or are starting to improve? Absolutely, uh, Clara. I think it's been an absolutely fantastic and eye-opening series. And I think you've brought together a huge number of of themes and offered really fantastic insights across the board. And I think you're absolutely right. This practical... um, challenge is 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 a really key one that we 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 kind of need to confront i think it's things are improving interestingly there was a very uh, important study published by harlan krumholz and colleagues in the states uh, just last week 
And that shows that there has been improvements in patient safety over time. We've got some really good examples uh, that are really quite compelling um, in the UK as well. I think the, the reductions in healthcare acquired infections um, have been impressive. You know, that was a huge problem just 10 years ago. Uh, we've had reductions in stillbirths and uh, there are other indicators that are improving all the time. I think where we're still struggling a bit is with these kind of organizational degradations for want of a better word, where an entire unit or service seems to kind of go off. And um, as Bill Kirkup has said, um, the really depressing thing there is the recurring features. And that, 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 can, feel, that can feel quite demoralizing because it feels as if we're kind of bound into patterns. What I would say is that as well is that if we look outside healthcare, so you can look at things like oil rigs, you can look at things like the building industry, you can look at things like the space program in the states, um, the, 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 you can even look at football, um, that there are examples of recurring disasters and things have improved over time. Now there are things that, that work when you're trying to improve over time and the things that don't work, which I'd be very happy to, to talk further about. I guess I'm interested when we've talked about evidence and we've talked about patterns um, and then we've talked about measuring, you know, when things go wrong and, and how we do all that. Um, one of the things that occurs to me is, are we measuring the right stuff? So not only measuring, are we keeping patients safe, but are we looking at the right data points to actually identify outliers or, you know, those teams or areas where things seem to sort of recur um and I, I guess my sort of my second part of that question is is that data always quality or is it always quantitative or actually are we are we focusing too much on on the numbers and not thinking enough about the other data the human data very insightful as always Clara so uh, we absolutely need to have that quantitative data um, and we need to be using it in highly intelligent ways what can happen with monitoring data is it, it can become kind of bureaucratized in a funny kind of way and, and lose its meaning mm. so I, 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 there is absolutely no doing without it that is essential but I think we have to complement it with other forms of intelligence we sometimes call this soft intelligence and that, that, that's kind of listening stuff. It's listening to stories. It's listening to people who don't often get heard. They could be the cleaners on the wards. They could be the healthcare assistants. They could be, um, uh, they could be the patients themselves. And, and that kind of gathering that kind of um, data is just as important and also needs to be interpreted and acted on in the right kinds of ways. The challenge for organizations is that that kind of um, intelligence is often very difficult to process through institutional systems. And one problem we've become very interested in is the problem of forbidden knowledge. And everybody will have experience of this where you know there's something really dodgy uh, going on, or there, there could even be possibly a dodgy individual. Um, and it, it, it's extremely difficult to give voice to that because the, it, it, it's got some kind of um, occult quality or it's dangerous to speak out about it or you're not completely certain. So I, I think there are multiple forms of points of intelligence that we need to be looking for. I think what's also important is to distinguish um, uh, cultures, if you like, between what we like to call comfort seeking. So that they're looking at 
data and what they do is they tell themselves a kind of comforting story about what it says. But if you go into an organization that's problem sensing or a service that's problem sensing, they're using that data in a completely different way. They're saying, how can we make ourselves better? What, what, what went wrong there last Tuesday? Um, and and that they're much more creative and much more interrogating, if you like, and, and they, they see it as a source of um, improving rather than a source of, um, of, of challenge. I always think back to Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety and her brilliant TED talk on that, because I think that, you know, before I'd watched that, so much of what was tied up in my mind about reporting errors or mistakes or anything like that was that bad. And actually understanding that being able to report those things evidences psychological safety of a team and therefore you can learn from it. Um, That always feels, you know, it, it, feels like things are safer and better when that happens. Do you think that we, do you think that in terms of that improvement that you've seen over the years, do you think that that is something that we are getting better at, being able to hold the mirror up over time? I think in some places, I think it's it's quite variable. And I, th- I think one of the challenges that we have now, of course, is that the structural conditions have shifted. So much of the improvement occurred during relatively stable periods of staffing. Um, we're now, unfortunately, into kind of crisis mode. We have um, we have major issues with workforce and being able to staff units and services safely, and that that does change the game. You know, Avidis Donabedian, who's a kind of father of uh, one of the founding parents, if you like, of the the quality improvement movement. You know, says outcomes are determined by two things: structure and process. Quality improvement has traditionally focused on processes. How do we do this more efficiently? How do we do it more safely? But structure is just as determining of outcomes. And if you don't, if you don't have the structures in place, everything falls apart. So I, I think we're going to have to be really alert to the risks that are now coming into the system because of the the safety issues. So I think things are getting better. Um, overall but uh, because I think we're learning a lot more about how to control risk but we also need the structures to be in place to allow that to actually be delivered. Um, And maternity and maternity services has been something that we've come back to a lot in this podcast and I think it's because a lot of the big investigations a lot of the big reports have been around maternity services. Something that really struck me and that Bill said Bill Kirkup said very early on I think you reiterated is that more often than not, it seems that patients, patients' families and the media bring bring problems to light in a way that doctors and clinicians and nurses cannot always do. Um, and I still don't really know why that is, why the system is set up so that, that that ends up being the way that things are. And I wondered if you had any thoughts or reflections on that. Yes. And again, this is actually something that you see in other industries. Um, So there's a whole literature on disasters and what happens in the lead up to disasters and um, why they're often surfaced actually in the same way by advocates or others rather than the industry itself where it's it's happened. And uh, I actually think there is an ongoing role for patient advocates and activists um, that that's really very important to keep in the system. Now, we also don't want it ever to get to the stage where we have to have those. But 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 what once once they have begun to recognise a problem, I think it's it's enabling that voice to to be heard. 
And I think some areas are actually underserved um, because particularly vulnerable groups just may not have activists working for them. So I'd, I'd like to see more attention given to those groups that may not have the, the same the same voice available to them. So I, I think they have a very important system role, but we also need to do more to, to essentially um, not get to that point. So if, if you look at the disaster literature, the, there's what's usually called an incubation period. And this is where um, things are, are beginning to go wrong. And we know they're very characteristic processes, things that are happening during that incubation period. And there will be things like, we've already discussed this concept of normalized deviance. Mm -hmm. So things are beginning to slip and because it's happening over time, you've got drift and people are tolerating it. And um, there may be a lack of clarity about where responsibility lies for fixing it. And this is a huge problem for healthcare. And it, it may also be the case that you get kind of an in-group effect where essentially th there's norming going on of, of each other. And there's a beautiful description in the disaster literature. When the disaster occurs, it's an abrupt and brutal audit of everything that was going wrong mm -hmm. before. So when the disaster happens, it's not, it's not that moment that all kinds of conditions that have, have, have led to this happening. So, so there is something about getting better about knowing about this and knowing, basically recognizing this is an incubation period, mm. that this isn't normal. Again, I think, again, I think doctors in training have have a huge intelligence about this. I mean, you're going around from um, site to site, you see different things. And, and again, I think we, we, we could do better with listening to the kinds of um, intelligence and structuring that and learning from it as as as, as things are, are going along. I think you can be in an in an incredibly fortunate and unfortunate position as a trainee yes. in that you yes. you see these variations of practice and there's always going to be variability and sometimes you go somewhere and you think no this is a real outlier but there doesn't seem to be any part you know there isn't a, a place to, to to have that voice that you talk about um and, it, and then I think, what was the other thing you said about forbidden knowledge? It's almost forbidden knowledge that everybody knows those hospitals that people don't want to go to and that there are problems, but you're not really allowed to talk about it because actually it can feel like it's an, an impossible thing to fix. Yes. So what, what you're describing there, Clara, is, is a classic institutional problem. When mm. you say there's nowhere to go, that, that's exactly what it is. So, so the, the, this is, again, very well described in other industries. And it's called the problem of many hands. Mm. So it's not like there's any shortage of agencies and bodies and organizations in healthcare. But what there is um, a challenge is locating exactly where the responsibility for action might lie. And again, not specific at all to healthcare. I, th I think that there, there, there's probably a very nice piece of research to be done to, to think about how essentially the, the intelligence that doctors in training are harvesting could could be could be used in a more productive way and to de-risk um forbidden knowledge and because it, it is very often the case that everybody knows um mm. about about a problem but actually it's not it's not known uh, if that makes sense mm. and i'm sure uh, bill kirkup says exactly the same the same thing it's it's often when you arrive on the scene it's it's not like this was this was a, a kind of completely fresh problem yeah, I think I think a lot about how those places can get out um, out yeah. of that cycle because it seems to me that certain hospitals, certain departments, 
they become trapped in this sort of really nasty, vicious cycle of failure. They get a bad reputation. They end up generating more outlying clinical care. The reputation gets worse. Then trainees dread going there and so on and so forth. And, you know, patients as well are so much a part of that. Patients on the you know on the ground will say yes that's my closest hospital but I don't want to go there I would rather you know drive two miles more down the road to get somewhere else um I've thought a lot about how you fix that and the only thing that I can keep coming back to in my head is do you just sack everyone and start again or is there another way that we can take those places trapped in that cycle and actually build build back better for want of a better term from the ground up yeah Again, what you're describing is very familiar. It's it's a kind of death spiral that uh, once once uh, an organisation has crossed a certain threshold, exact all of these ratchet effects start to to kick in, and there there just has not been enough research about what to do with mm. with um, organisations like this. What I what I can say is, um, and this this is again something you'd find all around um, the world, not just the NHS, and in, in fact not just um, the healthcare sector is that in every one of those um, apparently challenged organizations, there are gonna be bright spots. And and that's one of the things you can work with. I think there's something really important about about learning from what's going well. And this is a kind of increasing momentum in the research community is, is understanding what characterizes good and then supporting units because I think this slapping them because they're bad kind of just doesn't get anywhere and just in fact increases this sense of being under the caution and so on so I think for I think what I would like actually is is sacking everybody clearly isn't an option because we don't we don't have that you know there's all kinds of HR reasons quite apart from everything else and also most people are good people mm. and 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 the, with the right support uh the right kind of customized package of things and uh, a positive sense of what they can achieve, I think we could go a very long way. I th- So my other comment on this is that I think HR has remained the unexplored um, and unsupported end of the health service. Um, it's, it, does, it doesn't get the recognition as a kind of real challenge that needs to be mm. tackled. I think there, there are all kinds of things to do with how we look after people, uh, basic things like do people have somewhere to lock their rucksack during the day? Do they have somewhere they can make a cup of tea? Do they have a clean toilet they can use? All, all that sort of stuff really, really matters. And it matters not just because they're, they're things you want, but also as a, as a sense of valuing people. Mm. The rota thing, I think, drives everyone completely mad that you can't predict whether you can get off for your wedding. Um, you know, there are lots of HR type things that could be fixed. And, and there's something about fixing those, because when you go into high performing organizations, that's that tends to be one of the things they've got right. Um, and that that sense of people feeling valued, that they're an asset, that they are loved in some sense, all just so important and so easy to kind of not not recognize as being the heart of what matters I think that's been the biggest learning point for me out of this podcast series is I would never have thought that all of those things like where do I park my car can I park my car can I leave my stuff somewhere had anything to do with patient safety but what almost every episode and every person I've spoken to has gone back to is what I frame as that almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of doctor needs in my head you know when you get to work does your badge work um 
do you have somewhere to park you know and, and actually most doctors if you ask them will say that the most stressful thing is not looking after the patient that's trying to bleed to death or die on you it's actually is it's dealing with hr stuff um not individuals within hr but just it's a perpetual frustration yeah absolutely yeah, yeah it's, it's a feature it's an infrastructure that i think has not had attention or support or investment and it's again i think actually where you could do an awful lot to um co-design what good would look like mm. and then work from there but I, I think there just isn't even the the kind of um set of common expectations and i, I do think it's performative as well as, as you've just said it's 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 it's, it's that feeling that I am valuable and I am valued um, that, that's so important to people and just has to be got right and just 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 isn't always. And it, it just matters so much for people feeling that, that they are being supported to do the best they can do for their patients. Mm. And I think, you know, setting that up as something that we look at as part of patient safety is the beginning of that, right? You know, if you talk about clinicians feeling like they belong and like they're valued if that is a part of patient safety I think immediately we start seeing it differently we don't see it as something that you know is nice if you have it but if you don't like never mind it is essential to the way that we work I think absolutely um and I think linked to this then it's it's not quite an HR thing it's actually something where we have there has been a lot of attention but I think not always the implementation is the um communication with each other mm. and teamwork um, elements of things. But, you know, you are trained now in medical school and how to communicate with patients and quite right. It's it's not just a, it's not just something you're born being able to do and, and <laughs> being, communicating effectively with patients, you know, you can be trained to do it and it, it, it does make a difference. But, but we don't always see the same quality of investment going into communicating with each other. And it, it's it, uh, or to how how to make teams work. This is quite frustrating to me because um, this is one of the areas where we actually have an excellent evidence base, and there's a really fantastic evidence base, for example, on communicating in an emergency, and what you need to do. And and the thing is, you can't mm. make it up. You can't improvise it in the moment. You have to be trained. You have to do simulations. And when it happens, then when there's the a, br a brutal and abrupt audit. And that's when it really matters. Again, I just don't think we have that consistently at the forefront of, of what, what we're doing. To what extent do you think tribalism between both specialties and also, dis you know, uh, different clinical teams? So I'm thinking nurses, doctors, midwives, maybe even HR. How much of a part do you think or do you think it has a part to play in um, what ha what goes wrong when when inevitably something goes wrong is that as a result of that or is that just an unfortunate coincidence it's it, it i don't think there's very good evidence at the moment on tribalism my sense is that it, it is actually um not, not the problem it used to be and i think the the advent of multidisciplinary teams and multi-professional mm. training has made a huge difference there and that's what you would expect because the evidence suggests that makes uh, that that makes a difference. So, so what I have seen is is a lot of respect between the professions. It's it's not everywhere, and some uh, disciplines are better than others, shall we say? 
Um, but I, I still think there's a, a job to do with the coordination work. And again, I, I, it, it consistently feels to me like we don't value coordination if you're not right in there in the clinical field doing stuff to patients. What you do doesn't matter. And actually what we see in maternity is, for example, the um, the the unit coordinator is is an absolutely key individual, just like mm. the air traffic controller. Nobody would think about landing a whole load of uh, jets without the air traffic controller. And that coordination function, I think, is just as important in healthcare and helps to reduce a lot of, you know, tribalism and so on. When you do find tribalism, it's really very um, unfortunate, and you have to do an awful lot of remediation work to to sort it out. I mean, my sense is we've been talking about maternity. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work with the two Royal Colleges, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the Royal College of Midwives. And certainly at institutional level, that's that's working really, really well. Mm. Uh, they, they you know completely respect each other. I suspect, you know, you will find pockets of where um, doctors and midwives don't get on. And, and I, again, going back to our comments about forbidden knowledge and soft intelligence, there are things you can do to intervene and I'd be very keen to see that that kind of intervention happen. Mm. I think um, just picking up on one of the other threads that's sort of gone through this podcast series, which again, I didn't really expect to, to, to end up talking about, but is our own ability to admit that we're wrong about things and, you know, I, I I guess I've thought a lot about whether this is just a doctor thing or whether this is just a human thing. Um, but I wonder if a lot of that, going back to your original point about the, the learning and how we generate learning, is about saying, okay, that didn't work, let's try and do it better next time. Instead of saying, that didn't work, but I can't possibly be wrong, so I'll just do it again, but maybe more aggressively next time and then it'll work. Um, do you think that... Do you think that that's a generational thing? Do you think that, you know, as a generation of doctors, we're, we're now much better at being able to say, oh, we're wrong, or, you know, we can question ourselves, or, you know, we're, not, we're gonna take a bit of time off work because we're struggling with our mental health. Whereas, you know, my parents' generation, definitely, probably, as doctors, <laughs> definitely, probably, definitely, um, wouldn't have done that. Um, do you think that's something that we're getting better at? Or again, is it something that you haven't really seen a big change in? I think some changes. So I think I think the um, challenge with admitting you've been wrong is a human thing, not a doctory thing. And you know, Amy Edmondson's book is is about um, and her fantastic analyses was not. You know, some of it is drawn from healthcare examples, but a lot of it isn't. So it's it's generic, uh, and nobody nobody wants to be wrong. Again, it's actually something you can be trained in how to do it. And simulations are very very key here. Uh, Victoria Brazel in Australia has been doing absolutely fantastic work with, on this and the importance of the debriefing afterwards. So yes. it's safe mm. to say, oh my God, we messed that up or um, we really should not have handled that in this way. And I, I, I just think simulations have a huge role. And it, it's, it's again what they do so much of in other industries. Even if you look at the army, nearly all of the training is effectively simulations. Um, so, so I think a really key role there and some of psychological safety is the is is being able to hear when somebody is is pointing out you're wrong. I think training people to say, "Oh, thank you," when when 
when somebody like that, that's that doesn't come naturally it doesn't come naturally to any of us but, but let, it's somebody letting you know you've slipped up or you've forgotten an instrument or you haven't you haven't done that closure correctly that's a gift to you uh, but we don't train people I think in how to to do it on your point about um the generation effect it's it probably is different um I, I'm very um pleased to see people now being much more um comfortable with admitting they're feeling vulnerable and much more willing to come forward um, and much more willing to accept help when it's when it's offered again that probably isn't universal but it, it certainly is something i've noticed in the generation i'm in versus um versus yours so I, i'm very very happy to see that i guess one of the the, the, the issues then is um where essentially the care for the carers is coming from I, 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 you know, people are asking for help. I'm not sure it's always fully available. And then, mm. that, you know, with, particularly with the conditions in healthcare at the moment, supporting a lot of people is also psychologically demanding for the people doing the support. And my sense is from having worked with doctors and medical students over the years, you're really great at looking out for each other a lot of the time. Um, but I, 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 sometimes that can be quite demanding for the person doing, doing the support. So I'd, I'd like to see a little bit more on, on that as well. In terms of things that we can do going forward, both as individuals and on a systems level, what do you see being the biggest challenges that we can find solutions for in the next five or 10 years to improve not only how we experience um, healthcare as people giving it, but also how our patients are experiencing that healthcare? Fantastic question. Okay, I think there are actually several really practical things we can do. One of them, I think, is going back to our conversation from earlier, I think finding the examples of places that are doing things really well. I think doctors and training can help us do that. So you you don't have to come forward all the time with concerns, but you can tell us this was brilliant here. This is how they're doing this. So I think coming forward to those positive stories, really helpful. I think a second thing, and this institute is working on the infrastructure to this, so I'll come back and share it with you. <laughs> I think helping to co-create the solutions and forming communities of people who know what good looks like, and then there they will help um, figure out how do we get there and help testing the solutions, which can be very, very small contributions from people that can be aggregated and where you feel you're part of part of the, the solution. I think that's very important. I think picking up some of these neglected areas of activity like HR and so on and trying to find the examples of, oh, they have sorted out the rota system mm. there. What can we learn from that? Mm. Um, so I, I think bringing that mentality and learning forward. I think so, uh, the big things like um, the, the absence of infrastructure for some of this learning um, the, the recurring um the, the recurrence of problems has to be kind of sorted out at structural level. So I think helping to identify where we have too many hands and not enough um, action is another thing um, doctors and training can do. But I, th- I think what, what, what you can do most of all is just bring this unifying vision of what we could achieve mm. and a sense of how we can achieve it within the available resources. Um, so I, I, we've learned an awful lot actually over the last 20 to 25 years of the patient safety movement, the quality improvement movement. And it, it feels like a kind of moment now to kind of capitalize on that and, and really bring it to life. And I think 
doctors in training are an absolutely key part of that. They're a huge asset for learning and for making things better. Well, obviously that's, as a doctor in training, that's music to my ears. But um, (laughs) I think you're so right. There is, you know, so much to be harvested from good practice in one place that could be, you know, translated across to to other places. Um, So that that is a wonderful thing to hear um thank you so much for joining me again today mary uh and for your fabulous insights i feel like every time i speak to you i come away with so much to think about in the days following well thank you very much tara fantastic uh, interviewer and i've really enjoyed uh, talking to you and the whole series has just been fabulous thank you Many, many thanks to Mary for joining us again. We've added some of the links to the things that Mary's talked about there in the podcast notes. We'll be hearing from Bill soon, but first, a message from our sponsors. At Medical Protection, we know better than anyone the ups and downs that hospital doctors face today. 125 years ago, we were started by doctors for doctors. And that same doctor-to-doctor experience still sets us apart in supporting our members. We go above and beyond the NHS scheme that only covers you for damages from negligence claims, giving you the right to request assistance if your clinical practice is called into question by the GMC or your employer. We can help with responding to and resolving patient complaints. And our host of risk management resources help you stay on top of your game. Then there's our 24-7 medico-legal advice line, which you can call as many times as you like without it affecting what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. We can do all of this because we're a member-owned, not-for-profit organisation where every decision we make is to benefit our members. Isn't it time to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org UK. Now, time to hear from Bill Kirkup. When we started this podcast, we wanted to hear from him specifically because of the work he does carrying out investigations into when care has gone drastically wrong. Unfortunately, Bell's actually now leading on another investigation into maternity services. While his report is due soon, we didn't want to preempt any of the recommendations before they're first given to the families involved. So today we're going to focus on how this work has affected him as a person and his tips on carrying on despite the emotional toll of patient safety work. Good morning, Bill. Uh, Welcome back. Um, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, So for those listeners who haven't heard you um, speak to us before, um, do you want to start just by introducing yourself? Yeah, thank you. Good morning. Um, I'm Bill Kirkup. I had a career as a clinician and as a public health doctor and as a um, manager of sorts um, and retired at the end of 2009 um, and then found myself um, being asked to do investigations and I've sort of made a third career for the last 12 years or so out of doing investigations 
um, and find it challenging but very rewarding. In those situations, and obviously you see you see a lot of very bad situations um, when you go in and do investigations. Is there any way that you can guard against that that burnout or that moral injury from from seeing you know harm or potential harm happening to patients? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, having a network of supportive colleagues is enormously important in these kind of situations. You, you won't be the only one who's aware of this, the only one who this is happening to. I think being able to call on that network is really important, um, as well as the formal mechanisms of support like the BMA. Um, one thing that distresses me a bit in comparing current practice with previous practice is that we've sort of kicked some of the props out from under that. Um, when I was a trainee, okay, it was shortly after Noah's flood, I know, but um, we had we had a, a system called a firm system. And yeah, I know that the hours that we worked were stupid and, and unsupportable and had to go, but it does seem to me that we lack now in many respects, the supportive environment that that gave you, that you knew, knew who you were working with, they knew you, they got to trust you. You knew that there were people there who were going through the same things as you that you could talk to and, and would talk to every day. Uh, I regret the, the loss of that. And I think it would be um, interesting to see if there was some way in which we could reestablish some of that. One of the other things that you um, mentioned in our first conversation that I, I've reflected on and I think has become a bit of a common thread through the series um, is about reflection, both the ability of an individual to reflect and on an organization to reflect um, and the difficulty we have in admitting fallibility in ourselves or within our organizations. Um, do you think that, you know, going forward, there's any way of, of building that reflection and that admission of sort of fallibility or the fact we don't always do things right? Do you think there's a way of building that in? I think it is changing, um, but I think it's changing far too slowly to be comfortable mm. um, and I think there are still too many echoes around of the previous system where what you saw amongst the people who you aspired to be one day was the reverse of that they, they were not reflective they were um, finding great difficulty in admitting um, that anything might have been done better or anything had gone wrong and suppressing any discussion about it and most importantly suppressing any learning about it and I think that does two things I mean one is you you don't learn so you keep on making the same mistakes over and over and that's a really common feature of everywhere that I've investigated in every setting um, but secondly it leaves people feeling uh, pretty unsupported when it happens to them because they don't admit that anything's gone wrong and it's a pervasive culture I believe it's improving I believe that as we improve training and as people come through with hopefully better uh, ideals that they want to live up to um, it's going but I wish it was gone a long time ago it shouldn't mm. still be around mm. and when you when you see these these you know you've mentioned networks when you see things not being done right repeatedly you know as yourself you know how do you guard against you know becoming incredibly depressed especially when it feels like the pace of change is is so slow 
<laughs> yes, uh, there is there is that uh, temptation, and, and I think I mean the other thing is uh, listening to the accounts over and over of people who've been harmed by these things um, mm. is difficult. You know, I mean, I don't want to make too much of that because it's nothing compared with what they've been through. But mm. in the end, you know, it does get to you, and I think it, it's the same thing. I think it is really important to have a network of people who are going through the same thing with you. Uh, and to be able to share these things with you. Thank you again to Bill and to all of our guests on the podcast. We're delighted to say we'll be back with another series of Doctor Informed soon, but we will be changing things up a bit. Instead of a deep dive into a single topic, such as we've done with patient safety, we recognise that there's so much going on in healthcare at the moment that we're going to be covering a much wider topic base, bringing in more voices from people at the front line of the service to hear what's happening to all of you. We're really keen to hear from our listeners for ideas for future discussions, reflections on the topics we've discussed today or in the past. So please get in touch. If you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or share with the people that you know. Tell your friends about it. That really helps people find it. If you'd like to hear other episodes, subscribe to Doctor Informed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And you'll be notified when our next episode in this case our next series, is ready. Until then, goodbye from us.